So we've been hearing a lot about fake news. Regardless of the news outlet that you might prefer, whether it's Fox News or CNN or whatever, you've likely heard that term a lot over the past few years. It's almost like it had just been invented. Actually, there's nothing new about fake news. It's as old as the ages. We don't get past the third chapter of Genesis before there's fake news showing up. It comes from the serpent in the garden. Fake news. It's anything that's presented as being true when it isn't. Anything presented as true when it is not, which leads to all kinds of confusion about all kinds of things, which is never good, but there's one thing about which you and I can least afford to be confused, and that one thing is heaven. We can be confused about any number of things, and it would make little to no difference and really no eternal difference whatsoever. But heaven is in a different category. Heaven is in the eternal category. And heaven is the one thing about which you and I can least afford to be confused. And so this morning, as we come to part two in our series, I invite you to think with me about heaven and the confusion that can so easily occur because of fake news. And many of you are aware that my wife and I have two sons, uh, John Jr. and Chris. Chris and his wife, Lindsay, and their daughter, Eliana, live in Franklin, Tennessee, where he is the equipping pastor for a wonderful church called Church of the City. John Jr. is 50, has special needs, and lives in a group home in Salisaw here in Oklahoma. He also renamed himself. He decided not to be John Jr. He wanted to be Jonathan. And so we've tried over the years to try to accommodate him and address him with the way he prefers to be addressed. And Jonathan has a question that he asked people. He and I will be in a checkout line somewhere, uh, Walmart or, or wherever, and, and there'll be people standing in front of us for the same purpose. And Jonathan will ask this question. Now, mind you, this is a perfect stranger standing there. Does not know Jonathan. Jonathan does not know him. There is absolutely no acquaintance, never seen this person before. And Jonathan will ask, will I see you in heaven? Just like that. No preliminaries. No, excuse me, my name is Jonathan. May I ask you a question? Nothing like that. He just locks eyes with the person. I've seen this happen over and over and over again. He locks eyes with the person and says, well, I see you in heaven. I should let you know, we have him here with us sometimes. And if you see me pushing a wheelchair with a man sitting in it, looks to be about 50 years old, probably Jonathan. And you should be prepared with your answer. Because <laughs> he is likely to ask. It's an interesting question, isn't it? Six words. Will I see you in heaven? 
It's his question. I have never heard anybody else ask that question. What's just as interesting as the question is the way people respond. Some will answer in the affirmative, like a lady I heard recently respond to him by saying, absolutely. There was no hesitation on her part, no reticence. Without any question, she had an assurance about her salvation. She was absolutely confident that he and she would see each other one day in heaven. Others try to ignore John. Jonathan. See how hard this is? They try to ignore Jonathan. And uh, they've never been asked a question like that. It's kind of off-putting. They feel a little bit off guard. And they don't know where this is going. And so they try to ignore him in the hope that he will get the message and leave them alone. He doesn't. (laughs) He doesn't get the message and he doesn't leave them alone. He thinks they haven't heard the question. And so he repeats it. And they typically will kind of scowl at him and try to hurry up their transaction at the checkout stand and get on their way. There are those, however, who respond something like this. And and actually, more times than not, it is a response sort of like this. I hope so. Or I'm working on it. I'm trying. I don't know people's hearts. I I don't pretend to know what's in another person's heart. But when I hear that question asked and a response like that, will I see you in heaven? I hope so. I'm working on it. I can't help but suspect that they have embraced one or perhaps both of the most popular views about heaven. The first being that good people go to heaven. Good people go to heaven. Because God is good, it just makes sense that He wants good people in heaven. And so the most popular and widely held view about heaven is this, good people go to heaven. And corollary to that and closely related is this, all roads lead to heaven. Because God is good and wants good people in heaven, it just makes sense that God really would not be too concerned about how a person gets there. It really doesn't matter if they just get there. And if people are good, then any road will do. Because, according to this view, all roads lead to heaven. Now, the good people go there theory recognizes that not everybody goes to heaven. It's understood that some people don't, that bad people don't. For example, Hitler. If there is a place called hell, as the Bible says there is, and actually only about 30% of Americans believe there is such a place, 90% believe there is a heaven, but only about 30% believe there's also a hell. But if there is a hell, it is assumed that someone like Hitler would spend eternity in a place like that. But when it comes to other folk, you know, friends, your friends, good neighbors, 
people who work hard, who love their children, pay their taxes, don't intentionally harm anyone, good people. It is assumed that when their life here is done, they'll enter heaven. On the premise that good people go to heaven, it is widely believed that what gets you to heaven is being good. Andy Stanley, who is a founding pastor for North Point Church in the Atlanta area, tells about a conversation he had with a woman named Phyllis. This was years ago when he was a student in seminary. And uh, he and Phyllis were talking about a lot of things, but heaven was a part of their conversation. And as they sort of wrapped it up, she said in kind of an offhanded way, if something were to happen to me, I know I would go to heaven. And it kind of caught Andy by surprise, and he said, really? Why is that? And she said, because I keep the Ten Commandments. He said, Phyllis, do you even know the Ten Commandments? And she was kind of grand and kind of sheepishly admitted she didn't really know all of the commandments. She knew some of them. And then Andy kind of pressed it a little bit, and he said, do you know where the commandments are located? You know, like in the Bible where you could find them. She said, nope, but I sure as blank don't break any of them. And she filled in the blank. Phyllis knew that there were some rules somewhere in the Bible. She didn't know what all of them were. She didn't know where to find them. But she was pretty sure that she had done well enough in trying not to break any of them that she would land in heaven. And there are a lot of people who are banking heavily on that same thing. They know they're not perfect. They would readily say, not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And uh, you could ask anybody in the room here this morning or in the room where you're watching this message, are you perfect? And you'd likely hear, no, nobody's perfect. I actually thought about having us do that. I thought about just taking a moment and have you ask the person sitting to one side of you, are you perfect? And then I realized that would not be a good idea. Because what if someone said, yeah, I'm perfect. What if that happened? See, we're very clear about this being a church for a particular kind of people. What, what kind of people? Yeah, imperfect. Imperfect. So if someone said, yeah, I'm perfect, that'd be a problem. So I didn't want to create a problem for anyone here this morning. But most of us would say, yeah, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. And yet many who are quick to say nobody's perfect are banking on the hope that they are close enough that they will be good enough. They're like those who answer Jonathan's question, will I see you in heaven? And they say, I'm working on it. They're hoping that when all the final tally is in, there will be enough good to their credit that they will be good enough. It's all based on the good people go there theory. Second to it is all roads lead to heaven. All roads lead to heaven. It's like you were going to drive up a mountain, but before you did so, you drove around the base of the mountain. You discovered there were a number of roads that promised access to the summit. 
And you could just pick and choose which of those roads you prefer. Some would give you different views. Some would be more scenic than others. But ultimately, all the roads would converge at the destination at the summit. And so it really ultimately didn't matter which road you chose. And many believe that's how it is with heaven. That all roads lead to heaven and it really doesn't matter what you believe. You can just sort of pick and choose what you wish to believe. And you can be part of a belief group or not part of a belief group, and it doesn't matter. It's entirely optional. You can be Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, mystic, or as many today are opting, none of the above. None. Not not N-U-N, not that kind of none. N-O-N-E. Just none of the above. And it doesn't matter. Because God is good. God desires good people in heaven. And it just really doesn't matter to God. So this view would have us understand. All roads lead to the same destination. All roads. Any road will do. Because all roads lead to heaven. And that is so politically correct. I mean, how could you be more politically correct than that? It just isn't what Jesus taught. And if anyone has inside information about heaven, it would be Jesus. And so it's worth considering, what did Jesus say about heaven? And how people get there. Turns out that What he taught about heaven didn't sit very well with some of the most religious people around. For example, in what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And if there were any those sitting there that day who had been kind of daydreaming up to that point, I don't know how anyone would be daydreaming with Jesus speaking, but maybe if they were, they suddenly were no longer in that state. This had their attention. I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, teachers of the law were experts in the law. They were the instructors in the law. They taught the law. They knew the law frontward and backward. Pharisees were a subgroup of the Jews who were intensely serious about keeping the commandments. They were scrupulous about it. And in their mind, in so doing, they were assuring themselves a place in heaven. Unlike Phyllis, they knew the commandments. They had memorized the commandments, but they also knew where to find the commandments. They didn't have a Bible like we have with chapters and verses divided, but they they could locate the scroll of Exodus in which the commandments would be found. They knew the commandments and had them perfectly memorized. Not only that, they had also added additional rules to keep them from accidentally breaking any of those commandments. 
In the mind of the general public, the Pharisees were the best of the best. They were the very epitome of good. Now, they were also prideful and judgmental and legalistic. And Jesus called them hypocrites. Again and again, he called them out on that. And they were because what they projected outwardly was not what they really were inwardly. And so he called them hypocrites. But to the general public, it was stunning to hear him say, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. They're thinking, if the righteousness or the efforts at being good, if all the efforts that the Pharisees put into being good, if that won't get them to heaven, how do any of us get there? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a good question. We'll come back to it, but don't miss the point that Jesus is making here. He makes it clear that the good people go theory is a false belief. In every sense of the word, it is fake news. It sounds good. It's widely believed. But Jesus underscores that the good people go is fake news. And along with it is the corollary false belief that all roads lead to heaven. In that same sermon, Jesus talks about two roads, and they have different destinations. Enter through the narrow gate, he says, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Two different roads with two entirely different destinations. One is wide and greatly traveled. It's inviting and many go this wide way, but it leads to destruction. The other is narrow at the entrance and it is a narrow way, but it leads to life. Does it make any difference which road we choose? Does it really matter? According to Jesus, it makes a lot of difference. They're not the same. They don't have the same outcome. They don't lead to the same destination. The difference is enormous. It is eternal, in fact. It matters. Now, fast forward. From the Sermon on the Mount to that last night before Jesus was crucified, he told his guys that he's going away. And they will not be going with him. And they're shaken by that. It's the worst news they've ever heard. He's going away. They're not going with him. But he tells them this. You know the way. You know the way to the place where I am going. And notice, he's very specific and emphatic. The, the way. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And they're thinking, there you go again, saying things we don't understand. We don't know what you're talking about. And Thomas, one of the 12, speaks up and says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. So how can we know the way? 
And Jesus replies, I am. I am the way, the truth, the life. It's one of those I am declarations. We, we previous series of messages were all about these, these declarations of Jesus that have been brought into the Gospel of John, these I am declarations in which Jesus intentionally identifies himself with the I am of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the one who spoke from a burning bush to a reluctant shepherd named Moses to send him on a mission to Egypt to bring the people of God out of their slavery into freedom. And Moses was reluctant about the whole thing and didn't feel like he was the best choice for that mission and said, well, what is your name? Who shall I say has sent me? And God's answer from the bush was, I am. Tell them, I am sent you. Thomas asked, how shall we know the way? How can we know the way? And Jesus answers just as the voice from the bush, I am. I am. I am the way, the way, the only way. Not one option among a myriad of possibilities, but very specific and very emphatic, the way. And if there were any confusion about what that might mean, he clears it up for them and for us with the next words. No one comes to the Father except through me. No one. And I get it. I, I get it that that sounds so exclusive. And for many, it's not just exclusive. It sounds offensive. And they're offended that Jesus would claim to be the only way to God. And they say, how could that possibly be when there are so many people who well-intentioned, well-meaning, sincere people believe they have their own way to God? How could there possibly be just one way? What they overlook is the fact that the one who said he was the only way also predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off. And nobody else ever did that. Nobody ever did that except Jesus. And when someone predicts their own death and resurrection and pulls it off, we just go with whatever he says. Just, just go with whatever he says. And if he says he is the only way, then it must be that he actually is the only way. And that only through him could there be accomplished what had to happen for any of us to get to heaven. Which brings us back to our question, how does it happen? How does a person get to heaven? It isn't by trying to be good enough. It isn't by trying to keep the rules. None of us could be good enough, and none of us could keep the rules well enough. There was a problem. 
a problem that affected the entire human race. All of us were affected by it. It was a problem called sin. We had all messed up, and there was no way we could make up for our mess up. No possible way. And God, God saw our debt, our sin as a debt that none of us could pay. God saw our sin as a debt none of us could pay. No use asking us to do so because there was no way we could. Nothing we could do to make up for our sin, nothing we could do to fix the problem, nothing. And God did something amazing. God provided a way for us to be forgiven. Forgiven. That word means released. It means set free. God provided a way for us to be forgiven. Not just have our sins covered. People have been covering over sin for centuries. For over a thousand years, the Jewish people had been sacrificing animals as a covering for sin. But the death of an animal could never take away sin. Author of Hebrews is emphatic about that. It is impossible, he writes, not just hard or difficult, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Nothing about those animal sacrifices could erase the guilt associated with sin. For that to happen, something else would be required. To take away sin and to erase the guilt would require the unthinkable. Scripture says it this way, for God so loved the world. God so loved you and you and you and you and me and all the world. God so loved that he gave his one and only son. Our heavenly father, creator of the universe, did the unthinkable. I mentioned we have two sons, neither one of which would I give for anyone on the planet. And yet God did for us the unthinkable. And not only did he give his son to pay the debt for our sin, but for him to actually become our sin in the process. Watch this. Paul, writing to the believers in Corinth, says, God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. It's easy to read over that verse and just skip over what that really is saying and not grasp what the apostle is wanting us to understand. It's this, that every sinful, sordid, shameful act from the beginning 
to now and to however long it lasts, all the sin, all those things that you and I look back on and we would go back and undo if we possibly could, all of it, the entire sum of the sinfulness of the race of man, Jesus became. What that verse is saying, don't miss it. Jesus became our sin in order to pay for our sins. I can't get my mind around that. I, I can't grasp all that that means. But it's why Jesus anguished as he did in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he literally sweat blood. And he prayed, Father, if there is any other way, would you take this cup from me? When he prayed like that, it wasn't just the excruciating physical torture of the cross that he knew was ahead for him. It was that. That he who had no sin was going to become our sin. You say, I can't, I can't comprehend that. I can't either. But what it means is this. When Jesus was nailed to that cross, your sin and mine and the sin of all the ages was literally nailed to that cross. So that, so that, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him... In him, nowhere else, through no other means, down no other road, but in him alone, we might become the righteousness of God. Which is why. There could not be any other way. I don't know which part of that verse is the most amazing to me. The first part of the second part. The fact that he who had no sin became our sin, or that we who were sinful become his righteousness. Both had to happen. Both had to happen. You see, that's how it happens. How does anyone get into heaven? That's how. That's how. And that's why there could not be other ways. For there to be a way required the unthinkable cost of the Son of God becoming our sin. To pay the price that we could never pay, that we might be forgiven, set free, totally forgiven, the guilt erased. And that's what happened when you placed your trust in Jesus, whether you were a child and had little understanding about this, but you knew you could trust Jesus, or you were an adolescent or young adult or whatever age it happened for you. Whenever you placed your trust in Jesus, here's what happened. You received 
the forgiveness of sin. And you became the righteousness of God. He died in our place. He overcame death itself so that by placing your trust in him, this is what happened. You receive forgiveness, set free, and you received and became the righteousness of God. The Pharisees in all their effort to be good could never come anywhere close to being good enough. But you have been made the righteousness of God. Is that something we achieve by working at it? Is that something we accomplish by trying to be good? No. No, it is the gift of God conferred on you by the grace of God in the moment that you trusted in His Son. It's fake news that good people go to heaven. It's fake news. It sounds good. Many believe it. It's just not true. The truth is, forgiven people go to heaven. Forgiven people. It's fake news that all roads lead to heaven. The truth is, only one road. Only one road. There's not a multiple choice. There's not a, 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 a variety of ways. But there is a way. And the really good news is, <laughs> everyone's invited. Doesn't matter what your past, doesn't matter what you've done or has been done to you. Listen, everyone's invited. And everyone gets in the same way. There are not multiple ways. There is a way. A way provided at unthinkable cost. That's why there could only be one way. God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him. That's not just believing that He came and died and rose again. It all happened. But believing in Him means transferring our trust from our own efforts to try to be good enough. We abandon that and place our trust in the Son of God and Him alone for the forgiveness of sin and to be made the righteousness of God. It's not about trying to be good enough. We could never be good enough. It's about trusting the one who became our sin and died for us and defeated death and whose invitation to us all is come, come. Let me pray for us. Bow your head with me if you will. 
before I lead us in this prayer, I know there are many here this morning who would say, John, I know that if I were to die today, I'd go to heaven. If your son were to ask me, will I see you in heaven? I could say, absolutely. What a wonderful assurance that is. Others would say, I don't have that assurance. I don't know if I were to die today that I would go to heaven, but I'd like to have that assurance. You can. The wonderful news is everyone's invited. Everyone gets in the same way. It's by placing your trust in Jesus. Forgiven people go to heaven. And forgiveness is ours in the moment that we place our trust in Jesus. So if that's the desire of your heart, I'm going to lead us in a prayer. And if it's, it's your desire to place your trust in Jesus today, would you just pray this prayer in your heart? Just, just speak it in your heart to God. God, I confess I'm a sinner. I believe you sent Jesus to pay the price for all my sins. Jesus, I ask you to come into my life. Forgive me all my sin. I trust you as my Savior, my forgiver, the Lord of my life. Thank you for saving me. If you prayed that prayer just now in your heart and you meant it, the angels in heaven are rejoicing over you because you just walked through the narrow way as a forgiven person to eternal life. And Father, thank you that you are willing to do the unthinkable, to make it possible for anyone to come into a relationship with you here and now, forgiven and made righteous in you, now and for an eternity in heaven. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Church, can we thank Pastor?